You know, that song, Spirit Speaks, it seems to me, should be, the, should be the prayer of the church, you know, and how in response to God's grace and forgiveness, our greatest desire uh, is to follow the leading of His Spirit and making a difference in our world. Uh, with that said, uh, and as most of you know, we've been in a series called Wild Goose. Uh, it's a theological overview of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a guest and you're wondering, okay, what's up with that title? Uh, here's the background. Uh, there are a number of metaphors in Scripture, Old and New Testament, that depict the Holy Spirit, uh, the most famous being uh, that of a dove. But ancient Celtic Christians weren't all that familiar with doves. And so they adopted their own metaphor referring to him, at, uh, the Spirit, as Anged Gloss or the wild goose. And uh, I chose to use the metaphor uh, as a title for the series because, at least for me, it uniquely portrays the, the power, the freedom, the grace, and majestic nature of God's Spirit. And so, uh, as we wrap up the series this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. Uh, if you have your Bible, great. If not, you should find a Bible used down in one of the chair racks around you, New Testament, Acts chapter 1. And uh, if you've ever read the book of Acts, you know that it's a pretty long book, but uh, as I mentioned last Sunday, uh, it is possible to summarize the entire document rather quickly and, and simply uh, by noticing the last thing that Jesus said just prior to his ascension to heaven, the last thing he said that uh, was uh, directly related to the Holy Spirit. He said in verse 8 of chapter 1, he said to his followers, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm guessing that many of you have either heard or read those words before, but I wonder if you've ever stopped to think and realize that everything that happens next in the book, everything that happens next hinges on this one verse and its fulfillment. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come and dwell, teach, and guide his church, you know, his followers, to not only live uh, out their lives, but to do it with a sense of mission, a sense of purpose empowering Christians to, to be witnesses to and messengers of God's love and grace. First in Jerusalem, sort of their local neighborhood, and then, and then to Judea and Samaria, the greater surrounding region, and then, and then globally, you know, to the ends of the earth. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. The Spirit came with power upon believers there in Jerusalem, and subsequently through their message, their ministry, their, their love, their service, their, their generosity, um, through all of that, the church grew rapidly in numbers, expanding and, and spiritually impacting not only their community, uh, but a culture, indeed an entire empire, and eventually the world. Which, by the way, is why this document is known as the book of Acts, not the book of ideas or good thoughts or good intentions, but the spirit-empowered acts of the apostles and of the Christian church. Now, do you realize that our experience here at Parkview is nothing, nothing more than a continuing outplay of Acts 1-8? That's true, it is. Trust me, when, um, what we see happening uh, around us here is not the result of some ingenious growth strategy that I and a few others concocted and implemented and are soon to write a book about. I'm not that creative. Uh, it's much simpler than that. We're just a group of committed Christians who understand that our mission right here and now, hasn't changed from when Jesus first explained it. And how, you know, through our acts of love and teaching and ministry to the people around us, we are witnesses to and messengers of God's grace found and experienced in Jesus. And our ability to fulfill this mission that he's given us comes by way of the Holy Spirit at work in and through all of us. 
Here's my personal reiki summary of that. The spirit-empowered acts of the Christian church didn't end with chapter 28 of this document. It went on. And it continues with us today as we write our own chapter in local, regional, and global church history. And so I want to I talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about the practical implications of that, uh, especially for us, you know, and of what the, God's Spirit is doing and where He seems to be, to lead, to be leading us as a church in, in, in fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Uh, over the past three years, uh, since 2009, as a church, we've experienced about 36% growth in our attendance. That's a pretty big number. Uh, for example, uh, when we compared last December 2012 with December in 2009, uh, over the holiday season, we increased 73% in attendance. In fact, the day before Christmas Eve, I came in here alone just to pray for a while, and I just asked God to draw people to us to come and so they could, they could just hear the true message of Christmas, you know, the message of God's grace. Uh, in Jesus. And uh, on Christmas Eve, I got to share that news with about 2,000 people. I'm praying for the same this Easter. And just so you know, I never, <clears throat> I never set out to be the pastor of a big church. Really, all, all I've ever wanted to do is just, just simply tell people about Jesus and teach the scriptures. And as we've been doing that, God seems to be bringing more and more people to us. And, and there's this increased sense of momentum. This, it's like a spiritual wave, this moving of God's spirit that that's pushing us forward, that's exciting, it's thrilling, and with it comes great responsibility. Uh, recently, I was asked by um, an individual who, uh, why I think that we're experiencing all this as a church, and you know, there's so many struggling churches in America today, and, and honestly, apart from the sovereign work of God, I mean, I don't have a lot of profound answers for you, but... Um, I'm confident that much of it has to do, first of all, with biblical truth and conviction. Understand, there are three approaches to life. Atheism, and I'm not just talking about an official belief system, but sort of a functional way of living, you know, ignoring God. Um, atheism means without God. Uh, or theism, in terms of like religion, you know, belief in God, but it's this performance-driven, works-oriented deal. Or biblical Christianity the understanding of grace through faith in Jesus. And explaining the difference between these three, atheism, religion, and the gospel, is a pretty effective way to challenge people in our culture to really think about what they believe. And it brings people to a point of decision. And what we're seeing is that when people understand really who Jesus is and what he has done, and when they embrace the, his good news of grace, it transforms their lives. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. See, the basic operating principle of religion is I gotta work hard to be good so that I might be loved by God and forgiven and accepted so I serve and I give out of guilt and fear and obligation. But the basic operating principle of the gospel is I am graciously loved and forgiven and accepted by God through Jesus. And so my giving and my serving comes from a place of freedom, a place of joy and deep gratitude. In other words, what's happening to me on the inside is affecting what I'm doing on the outside with my life. A few weeks ago, I, I, I spent uh, an hour or so with a young man, uh, a, young, a young dad of a young family, and uh, we had some coffee together, and he uh, was sharing with me his faith story, and, uh, and he was saying that he grew up in the church environment, but it meant nothing to him. And so he drifted away from it for a long, a long time, and then, uh, you know, recently, 
wanted to re-explore really what he believed about God and all that. And he ended up, uh, he and his family ended up here at Parkview about eight or nine months ago. And he said, you know, for the first time I realized that, that my, my religious life has always been about performance and guilt and, and, and serving out of obligation. He goes, now finally, for the first time, I understand the reality of God's grace. And now I, I really want to serve and give and be involved with something greater than myself so more people can hear about this and understand it. Look, there are, there are a lot of people in churches around this nation who look and, and, and talk like Christians but who are, who are kind of stuck in this religious mode. And the truth of God's grace is theoretical to them. It hasn't really moved from their heads to their hearts. But I believe that's what's happening here. That the grace of God experienced in and through Jesus is, is being understood and it's being experienced. And what hap- when that happens, grace changes everything. It changes us. The second reason for our growth has to do with biblical love and compassion. You know, our willingness to welcome, embrace all those who come to us, but also to get outside of these walls and go serve people in our community and make a difference, especially to the poor, the oppressed, the overlooked, the marginalized, is honoring to God. And the compassion that you guys show as a church, week in, week out, day in, day out, year in, year out, uh, the, the, the compassion you show and demonstrate through your generous giving and serving, all for the benefit of others, man, it's, it's Christ-like, and it's compelling. According to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. In short, this is God's will for us. Or as Jesus once put it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not love your neighbor as yourself so that you get something from them, or love your neighbor as yourself so you accomplish something with them. It's just love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And we love ourselves a lot. Back in January, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. John Dixon. He's, a, he's from Australia. He's a professor of ancient history at one of the leading universities there. He's also a very well-known theologian, author, pastor. He kind of does it all. And uh, I got to spend several hours with him on a Saturday and uh, hear his story of what, it, of what it's like being a Christian in a predominantly secular culture. Uh, because in America, you know, over 90% of people believe in God. But in Australia, only 68% believe in God in some way, shape, or form. 10% of people there are avowed atheists, with only 8% of people having anything to do with the church. And um, John said, you know, as an outsider coming, visiting America s- several times a year, he says he sees the rapid secularizing of our culture right before his very eyes. It's becoming more and more like Australia. And so we talked about what that, what that meant. And he shared with me his faith story and how how he, he became a Christian. He didn't grow up in a Christian family or anything like that. He went to a public school, and uh, it just so happened in that school, a couple times a week, there was this lady who would come in who would teach the Bible and religion. And that was allowed because uh, school officials realized religion's a reality, so they, they thought it was good for their, their students to be educated on it. So they had this woman come in from the community. Her name was Glenda. She would come in, and she would teach the Bible and about Christianity and religion. And John said it was, it was interesting because for the first time, he felt like he could actually ask a question and not be made fun of. And so uh, she would come in uh, a couple times a week, and at one point, they were in grad, uh, grade school, at one point she invited a bunch of students to her house for a big barbecue. And so they went to her house, only it wasn't really a house, it was a giant mansion. It turns out that Glenda is the wife of one of the wealthiest publishers in Australia. 
And so the kids went to this giant mansion for this barbecue, and that started a a long-term relationship between Glenda, John, and a number of his friends. And he told the story of how later on when he was in high school one time, he and his buddies went out one weekend, and uh, they... uh, they did a little drinking. Some of them did a lot of drinking, and one of their friends just got hammered, and he was sick and throwing up on himself, just a mess, a total mess. And they're like, what are we going to do with this guy? We can't take him home. His parents will kill him. So what are we going to do? So they decide, they got to come up with a bright idea. We'll take him to Glenda's house. And so they take this kid to, to, to Glenda's front door. They ring the doorbell, and it just so happens that Glenda and her husband are hosting this big muckety-muck dinner with all these highfalutin people. And so Glenda comes to the door. Now, they knew that Glenda wouldn't approve of their behavior. They knew how she felt about these things, and she was a woman of conviction. Uh, but she answered the door, and you know what Glenda did? She, she said, bring him in. We'll take care of him. We'll clean him up. Let's clean him up, take him. And she marched them through this fancy party in front of all of her guests, not embarrassed or anything. She just marched them in, and she took care of them. And the interesting thing is, John said, I didn't think much about it at the time, but after a year or so, it kind of dawned on me, why did we think that that was okay? <laughs> you know, why would we think it was okay for us to take our friend who was sick and gross to Glenda's house? And he goes, it finally dawned on me why. Because we recognize that Glenda was a Christian who was able to flex her muscle of biblical truth and compassion while at the same time flexing her muscle of love or biblical truth and conviction and flex her muscle of love and compassion all at the same time. And that made a huge difference in John's life. And he came to Jesus because of it. Look, there are Christians in America today who think that our mission as a church is to reclaim Christian culture by way of politics, protest, media, policies, whatever. But look, that is not our mission. It's not. We're not led and empowered by the Holy Spirit to reclaim a culture, but according to Acts 1.8, to introduce people to Jesus. We, we are the messengers who explain through our words and teaching and demonstrate through our actions God's truth, his love, and grace. But because many people assume the former, there are a lot of Christians who tend to operate today in what my friend John Dixon refers to as uh, admonition, uh, admonition mode versus operating in mission mode. And what he meant by that is, he says there are a lot of Christians today who think, think that we're still in Jerusalem, In other words, we're living in a Christian culture. Everything's Christian, but it's not true. And so living in mission mode means we realize we're not in Jerusalem, we're in Athens. Like Paul, when he went, he was among the Greeks and the Romans. He wasn't in Jerusalem anymore. What does that mean? People, uh, Christians who think and act in terms of admonition mode, they, they, they treat the culture as if they're backsliding Christians or just disobedient Christians. But in mission mode, we realize, no, they're just, they don't understand. You know, they're, they're, they're like the pagans of old. You know, they believe in God or gods, but they don't understand who he is. It's kind of foolishness to them. When we operate in admonition mode, we... We, op- we, we, we walk around with this air of entitlement and superiority over everybody else, but in mission mode, we act in, with humility. In admonition mode, we rebuke the culture, but in mission mode, we serve the culture, and we demonstrate what is true and right and good and healthy and godly. In admonition mode, we hope for social political outcomes, but in mission mode, we pray for gospel outcomes spiritual change in people's lives. I believe that our growth as a church is the result of the Holy Spirit empowering us to operate in mission mode, to understand and recognize 
We're living in a secular culture. Among a lot of people who believe in God, but, but who don't really know about him. And so with humility, we're trying to flex both our muscle of biblical truth and, com- and conviction, while at the same time, love and compassion. And I think that's what the Apostle Peter was getting at when he wrote the early church. And he said, look, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what's right, you are blessed. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this, how? With gentleness and respect. Truth and conviction, love and compassion. The two together are are, are Christ-like and spiritually compelling. And we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing more people not just come to church, but, but to come to faith and their understanding of God's grace. So, you know, what do we do about, about the growth? You know, how do we respond to it? And it's not nothing new. That's nothing new in the church. I mean, in Acts chapter 2, the church had to deal with 3,000 people coming to faith in one day. You talk about chaos, right? And they had to, they had to figure out what the, how they're going to handle that and strategies and all that. And so it's important for me that you know, you know, our strategies moving forward uh, are not intended to just be ways of getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but, but they're really about responsibility and managing well what God is doing and the growth that he's bringing and, and following the momentum and leading of God's spirit. So in, in some, just some broad strokes, let me, let me share five things we feel the Holy Spirit leading us to do as a church going forward. The first isn't very exciting. It seems kind of boring, but I, I figure I should mention it because it is important, and that is rewriting our constitution uh, constitution for churches, they're not inspired documents, okay? They didn't come down from high on stone tablets written by the finger of God or anything like that. It's just a document meant to provide an explanation and guideline for how we do things as an organization. The last time we made changes to ours was in 2009. The changes were minor because, frankly, we didn't anticipate uh, the growth that we've experienced. And so, essentially, it's a document written for a relatively small church, at least in terms of, of its procedural elements. And so, those things need to change because how a congregation of 120 does things is very different from a congregation of 500. And a congregation of 500, how they do things is very different from a church of 15 to 2,000. So, we, we need to deal with that. In order to deal with growth, we feel God leading us to make some staff transitions. Smaller churches can have staff members who are generalists. Larger churches need staff who are specialists, who focus on, on certain areas. And right now, right now we have more young families with young children coming than ever before. I mean, the number of kids and, and students is, is just growing. It's getting big and huge, and it's really stretching, stretching and in some ways stressing our facility. And the thing is, you know, we want to provide not just programs for kids, but good pastoral shepherding care and counseling and, and resources for our children, for our students, for single adults, for parents. I mean, we, we want them all to have not just good programs, but, but good, healthy lives and relationships and marriages and families. And so we want to strategically provide the kind of care and, and attention necessary to make that a reality. And we believe that Susan Shelley, who's been working with me here on staff for over 13 years, has the passion and knowledge, experience, and spiritual gifts to provide that kind of shepherding care. She's been our children's ministry pastor for a long, long time, but we think she has more to offer the church, and, and we, want to, uh, we want her to have the time and the opportunity to be accessible to people so we can better care for them. And so we're transitioning her to a new role uh, called pastor of family care. 
You say, okay, that's fine. What about children's ministry? Uh, Well, we're involved in a nationwide search right now for someone to come and join our staff and help us focus on children as well as uh, help us think comprehensively uh, about ministry to the next generation. In other words, the idea of discipling, you know, from the cradle to college or at least post-college. How do we do that? How do we do that well? What does that look like? What's important in that? We started this search, uh, I guess, about three and a half months ago. We have an organization helping us. Uh, they received over 350 resumes, and uh, we are now in discussion with four finalists, uh, and we hope to have a person in place by the summer. Uh, in response to growth, we sense God leading us to update and improve this facility. Uh, we moved into this building, what, six years ago, and now the demands of more ministry, more people, and especially the growing number of families and children, man, we've got to figure out a better way to deal with the Sunday morning log jam that happens out in the lobby up near the children's area. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about, right? Dropping off your kids is an adventure, uh, and it doesn't always lend itself to a positive experience, especially for our guests. And so we, we need to look at that. Along with that, we, you know, we say that relationships are important to us, as Steve mentioned earlier, and that's true. But we have little space in the lobby for people to really connect and talk and spend any time together. And we think, there are th- we think there are some renovations we can make to help address those things. And plus, the facility is aging. Six years, uh, more and more people, more ministry. We need to keep up with the repairs. It's, it's wanting in terms of a security system. We need to improve that. We need to improve on energy efficiency. And if we can, we want to creatively make room for more people to come so that more people can hear the message of God's grace in Jesus, found in Jesus, and get it, experience eternal life. Uh, the third thing we sense God leading us to do is expand our influence to the east along what we call the North Avenue Corridor. You know, in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, actually, uh, the Apostle Paul had an interesting experience. We're told that one night he, uh, he had a, this dream, as he was sleeping, he had this dream of a man in Macedonia, which was, he was in Troas, just across the Mediterranean this guy in Macedonia is standing and begging him to come over to Macedonia and help us. That's what the guy was saying to Paul in this vision. And uh, that's what Paul did. He went, but he didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, how it was going to play out, but he went. We haven't had a vision or anything like that, but we do sense God you know, calling us not to the west, as he was calling Paul, but to the east. And we started talking about this in 2010, and we actually took some steps to, to go out and be the church in, in, that, in that area, in that community. And we, we talked to uh, community leaders about what were some of the needs in the community and how we might be able to help. We ended up talking with uh, public school officials, and we learned that two of the poorest schools in DuPage County, Jefferson Middle School, Schaefer Elementary School, are right there just south of North Avenue. And the opportunities, we didn't know this going in or even when we started talking about it, but the opportunities that God has opened for us are just unbelievable. They're remarkable. Most times we hear about around the country, hear ugly news, you know, church and state or, you know, schools kicking Christians out or upset with Christians or wanting nothing to do with the church. Here we have a wonderful relationship through these two public schools. We have now uh, between 30 and 40 Parkview people mentoring, tutoring, and working with students at those schools, and they're asking us for more help. We help Jefferson Middle School fund and establish a steel drum program for kids, and it's just taken off. Uh, Each fall we go and we deliver gifts, uh, gift packages to all the teachers, all the administrators, even the custodian staff, and say, hey, listen, we appreciate what you're doing for these kids and these families. Along with that, uh, we have a ministry called New Name, 
which is reaching out to young women in the adult industry along North Avenue and in other places uh, in the area. And uh, they've had the opportunity to go and pray with young women and reach out to them and express God's love to them and uh, have been able to rescue a couple women from that lifestyle and, and help them get on a new path. One of the women is going to be going into ministry. We have a lot of guests coming from the east, you know, new folks joining the church from Lombard, Villa Park, Elmhurst. And so expanding to the east, we feel, is urgent, not optional. And while the plan is to continue doing what we're doing right now, there are two things, two other things we feel God leading us to do. First is to establish a second campus somewhere between uh, here and 294, where we can have a Sunday service. Uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a presence, a weekend presence. We didn't want to do that at first. We just wanted to go in and serve and help and be the church. And we feel the time has come where uh, having a service would be a good thing. Uh, so hopefully within the next year, year and a half, so we would like to establish that second campus. We also are feeling led to establish a community center somewhere along North Avenue. Um, John Dixon, my friend from Australia, you know, he pointed out that in a secular culture, the church needs to reestablish itself as the center of community where people come for help, where they know they can go and get help. That's how the early church worked. The early church wasn't just about Christians standing on street corners, you know, preaching the gospel. I mean, teaching and, and sharing the truth was part of it, but they also just helped the community. They served people. In fact, the, uh, the Roman emperor, Julian, he wrote about that, and he was trying to get rid of Christianity, but he couldn't do it, and he wrote, he said, you know, nothing contributes more to the progress of these Christians than their generosity to strangers. And he said, not only do they care for their own poor, but for ours as well. These Christians devote themselves to works of charity and kindness. Ray K. translation, truth and conviction, love and compassion. It makes a difference. And so we're embarking on what we're calling a second listening tour, going out to community leaders to our east and asking, you know, what, what's going on in the community? What are some of the needs? How might we be able to help you? But being engaged in the community there for two and a half years, we can envision establishing a community center as a place central to the community where people can come and get help for things, where, for example, moms can come with children during the week and connect with other moms, uh, where uh, we, we provide some, an after-school location for kids uh, or students who have nowhere to go. There's nobody at home after school, and we, you know, it's a place where they can stay out of trouble or where we can provide language classes, English language classes could be offered, or career-type counseling or uh, professional uh, or personal financial counseling or you know, uh, uh, recovery classes, recovery, recovery programs or free tax advice or preparation, free music lessons for underprivileged kids, basic medical help or at least medical screenings or even legal advice. I met a guy a couple months ago, Bruce Strom. He's an attorney uh, and he's the executive director of an organization called Administer Justice. And Bruce, Bruce said, you know, we've all heard it. We've all heard it said, you know, you have a right to an attorney. But that's only true for those who are accused of a crime. You know, that's not true for those who are victims. And so his organization works with local churches to help provide legal help to those uh, in low-income or no-income situations. And that makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, there are like 2,000 verses in, in Scripture that address uh, the matter of justice and the poor. I mean, understand something. You know, like it or not, poverty is increasing in the western suburbs of Chicago. The poverty rate here has increased by 76.3% over the last 10 years. 
It's creeping out of the city. And God is leading us not to run west (laughs) away from it, but to turn east and engage it and help and make a difference. And we're convinced that providing a community center along North Avenue to assist low-income families and individuals in Jesus' name will result in a huge gospel outcome. And then also we want to continue to extend our global impact you know, through continuing to send and support uh, ministry teams around the world through our ongoing relationship with our partner church just outside Kolkata, India, uh, where we support uh, somewhere around 40 children, uh, as well as uh, we help start and fund, we're now funding a medical clinic there. And then uh, also by continuing to cultivate our strategic partnerships with International Justice Mission and Living Water International. Now, all of that may raise a lot of questions for you. I get it. We have questions too. We have a lot of them. But here's the deal. I believe the Christian life is not meant to be some clear-cut, predictable thing, but instead an unfolding adventure with God. And only as we embark on that adventure by, uh, adventure by faith do we get a sense of where God is taking us and, and, and give God the opportunity to do some amazing things. And I realize the stuff we're thinking about and talking about are all dependent on the Holy Spirit's leading, empowering, and provision. And uh, I get that they're big dreams. But I I think we need a big dream. I mean, at least, at the very least, as Christians, we need a new dream because in America, the dream has become little more than a desire to live for myself, my comfort, my my security, my preferences. Uh, And that dream has, has seeped into our churches. And many Christians are settling for faith that revolves around catering to themselves when the call of Jesus is to actually abandon ourselves for the sake of others. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor who struggled uh, to follow Jesus in the midst of Nazi rule in World War II. And he authored what I think is one of the greatest books of the 20th century. In it, he wrote that the first call of every Christian is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. And the thesis of the book is summarized in one sentence. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man or a person, he bids them come and die. And Bonhoeffer titled the book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he gave his life for the truth of the gospel. You know, there are, there are about 4.5 billion people in our world today who have yet to experience the love and grace of God found in Jesus. About a billion of them haven't even heard of Jesus. What happens to them when they die, when they pass from this life to the next? I mean, that's one of the the most important questions for Christianity in America. Because if all people go to heaven, or if they get there by just trying to be good and religious, then there's no urgency to reach them, not really. But if people are facing an eternity without God then we cannot waste our lives, our time, our energy and resources on an American dream. We need to abandon that for a new dream, a a God-sized dream, God's dream itself, a local, regional, global dream. And um, I want you all to join me in pursuing that dream as an adventure together and see what unfolds. Listen, there is no mistaking it. You, the church, are God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. And what's happening here among us is is quite exciting. It's humbling, it's messy, it's daunting, it's fun, it's hard, it's inspiring, all the above, but but that's the way it's always been. From the very first day, 
of the church's existence. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But it's not power just for power's sake. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses locally, regionally, globally. Well, my friends, we are the recipients of that promise and that call to mission, the call to act. And by the power of God's Spirit, that's what we intend to do. I hope you'll join me. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you would, you would give us understanding um, and an awareness of, of the reality around us as a culture that we're no longer in Jerusalem, that America is no longer a Christian nation, a Christian culture. Um, and that's hard for some of us to, 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 to handle, to deal with. There's so many Christians today who want to wake up tomorrow and have it be 1950. But that's just not the way it is. Our culture is on a path of secularization. And in many respects, that may be a, a, a fearful thing for some people in the church. But I have a different opinion, Lord. I think we should view it as a great opportunity to be the church as it's intended to be empowered by your spirit and flexing the muscles of both truth and conviction and love and compassion. And in so doing, be so much like Jesus that it is spiritually compelling to the people who receive the work of the church and the word of the church, the word of grace. And I can't help but think about what Jesus said that uh, he will build his church locally, regionally, globally, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. You are our God and you have rescued us. You have empowered us with your spirit for purpose, for a mission, to make a spiritual difference in our world. And nothing can stand against us. And so we commit ourselves to follow your lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.